Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 1. I'll be preaching on, preaching on verses 1 through 11. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. After two days, it was a Passover and a feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery. Another, another word for that word there is deception. Take him by deception or take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant against them among themselves, and they said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. But surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your gospel and your Holy Spirit to illumine this passage of Scripture and magnify in our hearts the infinite love of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, whenever I preach on, on Mark chapter 13, I mentioned to you that it was the fifth section of Jesus' last week in the Gospel of Mark because Jesus predicted the, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destroying of the temple, and the swarm that Rome would do around Jerusalem in that generation and tear it all down in 40 years. In AD 70. Now in chapter 14, we come to a, a new section leading to the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And I would suggest to you this is the sixth section in Mark's gospel of Jesus's last week. And this section includes chapter 14 and the entirety of chapter 15. And this sixth section reflects a lot of the themes of the sixth day of creation. On the sixth day of creation, God made man and woman. On the sixth day, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of knowledge. You can also call it the death tree, because if he ate from that tree, he would die. God also put Adam and woman into a garden on the sixth day. And God joined them in a loving marriage, and they spent the first night in that garden on the sixth 
day. All these themes here come up in a new fashion in chapters 14 and 15. In chapters 14 and 15, Christ is the ultimate man of these two chapters. He is the new Adam, and he actually accomplishes the impossible, as we'll see. Laying down his life for his bride. Adam was placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And he gave a part of himself, his side, his rib, his side, to, so that God would build a woman, a bride, and return that bride to him. Christ will enter into a garden in this, in this section, but he's not going to give a part of himself. He's going to give his entire self for his bride, his church. Also, the tree of death in the Garden of Eden that Adam was supposed to stay away from because he was not ready at that time for kingship and promotion. Well, we'll see in chapter 15, there's a new tree of death. That's the cross of Christ. And on the cross of Christ, the kingship of Christ will be announced and declared to the whole world. And knowledge will be given to people, especially the centurion. He will know truly this is the Son of God when he sees Christ the King dying on the cross. And just as God created marital love on the sixth day, we will see today in our passage today about the anointing of oil, that this signifies that Jesus Christ is the ultimate husband, the one who has the infinite passion for his bride, his church, so that he will give himself for her and to her. All these themes are of the sixth day are recapitulated here in chapters 14 and 15. There's probably going to be some more as I walk through these two chapters. Um, I just thought of one, but I'll wait till next sermon to talk about it. <laughs> Moving on, there's another echo to the creation theme found in verses 1 and 2. If you remember, I was reading this passage of Scripture in verses 1 and 2. The scribes and the Pharisees tried to deceive Jesus or trick him to put him to death. They're scared of the crowds. They want to do it in a way that's unnoticeable at night at a convenient time where where they're going under the radar and nobody notices it. But they got to deceive Jesus and trick him or trap him. This word for deception or trickery is also has a connotation of bait. You set the bait for a fish. You decoy the fish or you trick, you trick it and you catch him. That's what they're trying to do to Jesus Christ. This is very similar to the serpent in the garden. Adam and Eve were snared by the serpent in the garden. But also, Jesus is going to be snared. He's going to be snared, trapped in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, by the forces of Satan. Of course, he willfully is snared. He knows what's going to happen. He goes there, and he gives his life away for us. But notice this. I want to show you how Mark structures his, this gospel account. In verses 1 and 2, the, the Pharisees are discussing how they're going to bait Jesus, how they're going to trap him. And then... In verses 10 and 11, the end of this section, Mark brings up the bait. Mark brings up the means by which Jesus is going to be trapped away from the crowds, and that's Judas Iscariot. In verses 10 and 11, Judas then goes to the priest to betray Jesus, and they pay him money to do it. 
Now, let me first point out, point this out. There's an irony in this passage of Scripture right now with this trickery or this bait trying to trap Jesus. And it's this. Here's the irony. When, Jews, when Judas aligns himself with evil in order to trap Jesus, it is Judas who is actually being trapped by himself. He actually traps himself. He doesn't trap Jesus. Let me explain. Whenever Judas receives this money, these 30 pieces of silver, he regrets his decision. He traps himself in an emotional vortex and he kills himself. You see the same principle applied today. If a person aligns himself with the wicked, if a person aligns himself with a wicked person or an evil relationship and they let that evil influence them, that person becomes the fool. That person traps himself. For example, you'll meet many people in jail right now who are in jail because they made friends with criminals. Period. The crime of criminals trapped the person that became friends with criminals. That's what Judas is doing. But also, notice this. Why has Judas set the trap for himself? Why does he defect to the dark side? Why are 30 measly pieces of silver so attractive to him? The answer is found in our passage here. And it's going to lead us to another irony I want to, make, I want to draw your attention to. The answer is this. Judas aligned himself with evil because his eyes, but in his eyes, in his eyes, they wasted so much money on Jesus. That's why Judas went to the dark side, so to speak. Or you can say it this way. Judas did not believe that Jesus was worthy of the expensive oil that was poured on him. So it made him so mad. And he ran to the 30 pieces of silver from the priest. When Mary, and her name's Mary, because John tells us more details later in John chapter 12, when Mary broke this jar of oil, she broke, she didn't pour it over, she broke the jar so you could never use this jar again. So even the jar is destroyed. This jar was alabaster. It had a white marble looking color, extremely expensive, the jar itself. But the oil inside was even more expensive. She breaks the jar and then in a matter of seconds uses all this spikenard oil on the Lord Jesus Christ and pours it on him. And then they talk about the value and the price of this spikenard. Let me tell you this. If you worked one day in this time period, you earned one denarius. One denarius. Over the span of a whole year, if you subtract the Sabbath days when you could not work and the Jewish feast days when you should not work, there were a total of 300 days that, you, that a laborer could work and get paid. 300 days. So whenever they say and they get mad or Judas gets mad here and says, this was worth 300 denarii, he's saying this, you have just taken a whole year's worth work of hard labor and you have poured it all on Jesus. 
on this, the value of that spikenard. In fact, spikenard came from the Himalayan mountains so far away, it took a lot of time to bring it to the promised land. That's why it was so rare and so valuable. And it's just being poured on Jesus in a matter of seconds. And they try to justify it by saying, you could have given this to the poor. You know, some kind of self-righteous promotion there. So in the eyes of Judas, a year's worth of earnings was wasted on Jesus. And Jesus was not worthy of it. Well, here's the second irony I want to point out about Judas. Judas thought that 300 denarii was wasted on Jesus. Well, in God's eye-for-eye judgment, God made sure that 30 pieces of silver would be wasted on Judas. Whenever Judas gets paid for betraying Jesus with 30 pieces of silver, he doesn't buy anything with it. He gets so mad, he gets in his emotional vortex, he throws it back into the temple and he goes and kills himself. Total waste of 30 pieces of silver. There's an eye-for-eye judgment there coming upon Judas. Also, you'll notice with the 300 denarii and the 30 pieces of silver, the common multiple there is three. Three times 100, three times 10. The three in the Bible indicates a form of judgment, whether it's good or bad. Mary is judging Christ here. Mary is judging Christ as being well worth a full year's salary. It's a good judgment. She's pronouncing that good judgment there with 300 denarii and how valuable he is in her eyes. Judas, the 30 pieces there, magnifies the judgment against him and the waste of his life. Let me suggest this to you about how you can apply this irony to ourselves. And that is this. If, this is what happens if anyone thinks that it's a waste to give your life to Jesus or give your soul to Jesus. It would be a waste to do that if they think that. If they think that without repentance, then God will make sure that that person wastes their life. Because on the day of judgment, nothing that they do will be acceptable to God. It will all be just a waste. So I've mentioned two ironies about Judas in this passage of Scripture. Let me move on to talk about one irony about Mary and her oil. And I want to spend the rest of my time on this one irony. And that's this. Mary's oil in this passage has a price tag. 300 denarii. But Mary's actions, her action of pouring that oil is priceless. It cannot be measured. It cannot be valued. It's infinite. The significance of it, the meaning of it, goes well beyond human capacity to appreciate and understand. So much more than 300 denarii. And I'm not talking about Mary's feelings or Mary's emotions. What I'm talking about is what Jesus Christ himself understood about this anointing of spikenard, spikenard oil being poured, poured on him. How do we know what Jesus is thinking here? How do we know what Jesus knows that this is symbolizing? Well, Jesus knows the Bible so much better than all of us. And let me explain this to you. Outside of the Gospels, the only other reference 
to this oil, to this spikenard, is mentioned in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, the woman has an intense desire and passion for her man. And she puts a lot of oil all over her to attract him. And spikenard is one of those oils. In Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 13, it says, While the king is at his table, she says, My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the valley, in the vineyards of Engedi. Later in chapter 4, whenever her man comes to her to have her, she is, he describes her as a garden of pleasure, and he describes her as having all these oils upon her, and spikenard is one of those oils. Chapter 4, verse 12 and following says, this is the man speaking to her. He says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus, cinnamon, cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, alloys, and the chief spices. So all these expensive oils are used by her on her body to describe her beauty and to attract him. But also, notice this, in the Song of Solomon, these expensive oils are used to highlight his manliness and his attractiveness in her eyes. Here's Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 2. She says this, Let him kiss me with the kiss of his, uh, kisses of his mouth, for better is your love than wine, because the scent of your oil is the best. Your name is oil, is like oil poured out. Later in chapter 3, verse 6 of Song of Solomon, she sees the man arriving from the wilderness, and around him is a... His status is there. His, around him are mighty men, even protecting him. And she says, He had the scent of myrrh and frankincense, all with the merchant's fragrant powders. The point is this. In the Song of Solomon, expensive oils and perfumes, colognes, whatever you want to call it, all these oils are used as, for both the man and the woman. And these oils are used by both of them to prepare themselves for each other and to anticipate what each of them desire. Now, when you study the Song of Solomon slowly and deeply, and you take into account all the details in this book, you come to one conclusion about the Song of Solomon, and that is this, that the book is beyond human capacity. Let me explain this. Song of Solomon has too much emotion, too much passionate desire, and too much references to the rest of Scripture that it cannot simply be about Solomon and his wife. It has to be about God's passionate love for his church. In fact, this is explicitly what it says later. In Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 6, it says that love is as strong as death and jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flame of fire, the fire of Yahweh. That's the fire of the covenant God, it says. 
That's what the, script, the, the Scripture in the Song of Solomon is describing and using spikenard to indicate it, anticipated the union, the marital union between God and His people. And that's why Yahweh is the covenant name for God. It's using marriage as a symbol to describe the greater marriage of God and His church. So, here's the conclusion of the matter. To circle back. When we realize that Song of Solomon is is about the desire between God and His church, then we start to grasp what Christ Jesus understood about the spikenard oil being poured upon Him. And it's this. Christ understood that this oil being poured upon Him is identifying Him as the husband of infinite value. He is the man of ultimate desire. This oil being poured upon him is preparing him to give himself for his bride and to his bride. Because of his infinite passion, his infinite love and desire to rescue her, he is going to go all the way to that garden of Gethsemane and drink the cup that his father gave him to drink. That's where he's headed. This oil is preparing him for that burial into death. It's a love death where he gives himself all the way to the point of death. This is also why there's a parallel between the love of God throughout the Bible and the love of God within the Song of Solomon when you catch the symbolism here. In the Song of Solomon, the church or the woman has a desire to be kissed by the Lord. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And then later, God's love starts with the kiss and it escalates all the way to chapter 4 where God gives himself to her. You see this in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, it starts with a kiss. God kissed the earth, so to speak. He breathed the breath of life into the ground to create humanity. God's love starts there. And then over time, over 4,000 years, His love is escalating, revealing more and more about Himself throughout the Old Testament. And it comes to the apex. It comes to the highest point where God actually gives Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way to the cross, to the grave, God gives Himself fully and personally so the church can have Him. That's the spread of God's love throughout the Bible. And it's bottlenecked, it's symbolized there in the Song of Solomon. And Jesus understands <clears throat> that that oil being poured upon Him is getting Him ready for the greatest moment where he's going to demonstrate the infinite degree of his love for his bride. So as a result of, think of this continuing the parallels, well, as a result of God giving himself fully all the way to the tomb, the tomb is converted into a womb. And it gives birth to a new humanity. It gives birth to a new Adam. It gives birth to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the macro spectrum of the initial love of God all the way to the full love of God given Himself and the creation 
of the new humanity in the, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me boil all this symbolism down to you and give you some practical applications. Three of them. First of all, <clears throat> human passions and desires in marriage is just a sample of God's passion and desire. Let me give you an illustration like this. How much water is in the oceans? All the oceans of the water? I don't know. I, mean, I would suggest it's almost infinite. I mean, you, how do you qualify? How do you count all the drops of water in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Ocean? All the, and all the depths of the cabin, canyons down there under the sea? We have no idea how many drops of water are in there. But if you have one drop of water, you get to taste how what, what water feels like. That's like marriage. You get one drop of water. And this is a taste of the infinite passion and love of God compared to His ocean, His flame of fire that is infinitely more than what you're going to experience in this life with your marriage, with your spouse. This prepares us, I think, to understand, excuse me, to try to understand, because it's hard to put your mind around it, what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I would suggest to you that in the background of Paul's mind, the love of Christ there is the love that is symbolized in the Song of Solomon. The passionate love that he has for his people to give himself for her and to her. Secondly, another application is this. If you have a great marriage or a bad marriage, or if you never even get married in this life, eventually, all followers of Jesus Christ will one day experience the desire and the passion that the Song of Solomon describes. Because this flame in the Song of Solomon, this love in the Song of Solomon, is about that union with the Lord God Almighty, the living God. And we will all experience that when we see Jesus face to face. So if you read the book of Song of Solomon and you think, well, I'll never have that kind of marriage, that's not true. Because you will have this type of relationship in heaven. Or if you read the Song of Solomon and you think, oh yeah, I have that type of marriage, that's still not true. Because you don't understand the full depths. You don't understand the full depths the full extent that this is dealing with. And it's well beyond human capacity to have the fullness of Song of Solomon in your life. This is something that is a trajectory. It is, it is the, it's pointing you forward to whenever you see Christ in His passionate love toward His bride on that great day of judgment. Let me make one final and third application that is this. This is why Satan always wants to, do, to devalue marriage. You see that in our culture more and more, where marriage is devalued. That people are trying to live without it, saying it's antiquated, it's outdated. Just go ahead and live together. 
No big deal. Satan always wants to tempt Christians to have sex outside of marriage, outside of that covenant union between God and man. And the reason why is this. If he can get Christians, if Satan can get Christians to reject the marriage bed, then he knows that they will reject Christ. Because he understands that marriage is a picture and a symbol of Christ's relationship to his church. And this is the main reason why Christians, Christian teenagers, whenever they go to college, and if they are tempted to reject the Christian faith, it is because of their relationship with the opposite sex. And it doesn't square up with what Song of Solomon teaches. What does Song of Solomon teach? Over and over again, the woman teaches this. She says, do not stir up love or awaken it until the time is right. Satan wants you to do things outside of time, outside, outside of the right time, or outside of the right boundaries. And if you do that, then he knows you're not going to have a good taste of that heavenly water. If you do that, he knows that eventually that, ta- that water will turn bitter and even your heart will be, will be corrupted and the taste of marriage won't be that sweet. That's why he wants to continue to degrade it in our culture. So Christians need to know that if you wait for marriage, you'll have a better taste. You'll have a better sample of God's infinite passion of love for you in this life. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for our time together. We give you thanks for your love that is effectual so that it even motivated Jesus to not give a part of himself, but to give all of himself for us. And that you purify us so that we will be pure virgins, white as snow, in eternal glory. And we look forward to that great union that we will have with the Lord Jesus Christ in the life of the world to come. And we give you thanks for your cleansing forgiveness, your blood that atones for all of our sins and points us forward to the resurrection to come. In Christ's name, amen.